I have to start. I, I, I enjoyed what was happening in worship this morning. Gosh, that was noisy. I'm looking, I'm looking at your faces to gauge whether how many of you enjoyed it. I was just standing there enjoying this and thinking, this is actually in the Bible. This is not my preach today. I just wanted to, to give you a bit of a heads up. You know, when you, those of us who have been doing Hope Reads, you, we keep reading through the Psalms, and actually it says things like, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. So one day everybody's going to be crazy for Jesus. It says, shout to God, shout. And, and I don't think there's a, you know, a subtle Hebrew version of shout. I think shout is shout. Shout to God with a voice of triumph. And sometimes it's our own inhibitions that kind of... In fact, there's quite a lot of shouting in the Psalms, if you hadn't noticed. It's worth reading, looking it up, doing a study, all the praise words in the Psalms. I did it once. And it's insane what they actually mean in Hebrew is things like groaning and creaking, shouting, spinning around under a violent emotion. That's, that's what it actually means. So when we say, let's praise the Lord, we've kind of dumbed the word down to singing a few soft rock songs. If you dig into the Hebrew, this, this is about noise, it's about celebration, it's about kneeling it's about lifting hands it's about shouting it's about trumpets blasting it's about spinning around on a violent emotion so you know we're 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 still fairly tame compared to all that and that's in the bible and and then i did a study you know that that bit in uh, romans 8 where it talks about the spirit helps us in our weakness when we don't know how to pray and running that and and he intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words do you remember that now some people have taken that means that there's no sound Okay, that isn't what it's saying. It, it, what it is is inarticulate groanings is one of the best translations of that phrase. And the root of the word is a Greek word that basically means. The, 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 the squawk of a crow or raven is where the word comes from. So if you put that together with inarticulate groanings and some of the sounds that happens in our worship, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? It's just not very Scottish or British or... But it is very heavenly. I mean, it specifically records that there'll be silence in heaven for half an hour. I mean, some church experience the silence all the time. Do you know what I mean? That it's like silence has become the spiritual atmosphere, but heaven is noisy most of the time. And, and there are reasons for that. There's the quietistic movement uh, now, now a century two ago that promoted this sort of stoic, stiff upper lip silence as being spiritual. And we're kind of breaking out of all of that and letting rip something that's very rooted in the Psalms, in heaven, in what the Holy Spirit wants to do. So well done, all you shouters and praisers. And... Well done. It takes guts to sort of break out of the quiet box, doesn't it? Like, what will they all think if I suddenly do what's bubbling up right inside of me? So well done. I'm just so grateful that we shift the atmosphere and break out of the... Of the the history of religion, which is this, it's mostly quiet in heaven, 
with occasional noise. Actually, it's completely the other way around if you read Revelation. Um, ah, that was, that was good. Ah, so, we're becoming more biblical in worship. I like that. Um, so, so today I'm, I'm going to start a, a, a series. I'm really going to unpack for you um, some of the, the biblical understanding that I live with that means I am utterly convinced about the goodness of God in the land of the living, that we will see the goodness of the God in the land of the living, and how that uh, over the years of, of study and encounter with the Lord, that, that he has helped build a, a, a way of thinking about truth in the Bible that, that, that helps me embrace what he's leading us into right now in his goodness and not get stuck in some of the potential potholes, crevices, confusions that exist as you look at the Bible as a, as a package. And I, I'm, I'm just telling you, I've been studying the Bible for decades and, and had the struggles that we all have and processed and read and I just want to share with you some of the, the roots of my thinking. So today I want to really, what's the goal of what I'm doing? I want to encourage you, I want to maybe give you a bit more understanding but the goal always is that the understanding doesn't stand on its own because we're not here to pass a test to get into heaven on what we've understood we're here to understood stand understand something so that we can experience what we understand you know, everything that comes to you this morning there you go oh that's good that's a light bulb moment or that's a truth I hadn't seen is actually faith and invitation for you to experience the very thing it's not something you took away and think, when I, when I get to do my hires in understanding the Bible, I'll know the answer to that question. So, so we really are trying to combine the idea of experience and knowledge and understanding, which is actually the biblical idea. The Bible doesn't have them apart. We've separated them, and what we're doing is trying to put them all back together. So it depends on how theological, anybody feeling theological this morning? I'm feeling that sort of theological feeling. Yeah, a few, few. All right, if you're feeling, yeah, a few hands going up. Okay, for the theological amongst you, the title today for you is The Supremacy of Christ in Our Theology. I mean, that, that should be enough right there. You didn't need any more sermon than that, really. Uh, if you're feeling a bit less theological, it's, I still like the word supremacy of Christ in our thinking about the Bible. So, Let's get started. We're in the New Testament, aren't we, in Hope Reads? I forget, it was a bit back, we got Matthew 1.1. If you want to look at your Bible, go to Matthew 1.1. We're going to preach from Matthew 1.1. First verse of the New Testament. Very exciting verse. Most of us read it and go, move on. And then there's a whole kind of genealogy and, and there's lots of boring genealogies in the Bible, isn't there? I mean, some of it is a bit, endless <laughs> it has a purpose but Matthew 1 1 is, is our verse here we go a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ no, just the first verse will be great thank you Gideon the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ son of David son of Abraham why does it start there why does it say that 
The book of John, the Gospel of John, starts to talk about in the beginning was the Word and the Word was God and the Word was with God. So he's establishing Jesus' identity as, the, as God, actually, as the Son of God, but as God, face to face with God. He was God, with God in the beginning. Through him everything was made. Nothing exists has been made apart from him. So John gives us this big divine picture of Jesus. Matthew, after about 400 years of, years of no inspired writing so you end Malachi and then basically it's quiet for about 400 years the first verse of this new covenant of this new era tells you that Jesus is introduced to this audience as son of David and son of Abraham and we skip over that because perhaps we don't know why that's important but that's absolutely important to understanding the context of the New Testament revelation that we are being introduced to in the life of Jesus. And, and, and another thing I need to say is sometimes in our history, for all sorts of reasons, we get incredibly cross-focused. And really, we need to be Jesus-focused. The whole Jesus event is what we need, not just the cross because the cross without the incarnation is meaningless and the cross without the resurrection is ineffective. So to pull out, although the cross is incredibly powerful and, and incredibly, incredibly important, don't misunderstand me, it only makes sense in the whole package of the Christ event. This is the beginning of the New Testament, the New Covenant, and it begins with the birth of the Christ, not the death of the Christ, all right? The new thing happens when God joins himself 100% to man and arrives on the planet. That is the beginning of the new thing. That is radically, radically, radically new. And if that had not happened, the cross would not be as profound as we know it to be. So it, grasping the Jesus event, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his enthronement is what understanding the New Testament is about. And actually, what I, where I believe we'll end up in this is we'll understand that that's what the whole Bible is about. So Matthew 1.1, Jesus, why is it important that he's the son of David and the son of Abraham? Simply put, it's important because this text is telling us that God keeps his promises no matter how old they are and that God is you can read the Old Testament and think God's incredibly inconsistent but actually from this perspective God is 100% consistent he is a covenant keeping God and this is two key figures of the Old Testament story that God made a covenant with and in Christ, he's saying it is fulfilled. And let me just show you what I mean. So Abraham was promised, and you can look this up, Galatians 3 is a good place to look this up in your own time. He was promised that in you all nations will be blessed. And Paul pulls this truth out. He says that now the promise that was made to Abraham and his offspring it does not say to his offsprings, or some translations, to his seeds, but to his seed. Referring to the many, but referring to the one, 
and to your offspring who is Christ. God's promise to Abraham wasn't to his seeds, but to his seed. Wasn't to his offspring, plural, that all the nations would be blessed through you, but through the offspring, singular, that all the nations will be blessed through you. And he makes this deep and profound covenant with Abraham that through his seed, singular, all nations would be blessed. And what Paul tells us is the seed is Jesus. And what Matthew is telling us is the fulfillment of that promise from thousands of years previous probably is Jesus. He is the fulfillment. He is the fulfillment. He is the one who brings to pass the thing that God said to Abraham. There aren't other seeds. There are not other offspring. Obviously, it's through the line of Abraham that Jesus has come but he is the seed that the promise and the covenant rested on and it's fulfilled through him. So that's really important that it's son of Abraham. Do you see? Okay. How about David? God made a covenant with David. This one's slightly weirder. God made a covenant with David. Psalm 89 puts it this way. I've made a covenant with my chosen. I've sworn to David my servant I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Wow. But what happens in Bible history as you read through is pretty quickly things deteriorate and there is no David's throne, there is no king on David's throne. You think, well, God didn't keep the deal. There was a conditional element which was that his sons walked in the ways of the Lord. But there's something in this where it's going to build his throne through all generations. How, how does that work? Well, here's some of the build-up. All of your sons, out of all of his sons, God chose Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. Isn't that interesting? It wasn't the kingdom of David. It wasn't the kingdom of Israel. He starts to call it the throne of the kingdom of the Lord. And a little bit later in 1 Chronicles 29, 23, that Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king in place of David, his father, and he prospered. David's throne and God's throne become one and the same. It's easy to miss that if you're kind of skimming through, but... God starts to equate David's throne as his. Jesus is the direct descendant of David. And he sits enthroned. Acts chapter 2, they talk about it. Being therefore a prophet, David is prophesying and knowing that God has sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. Whose throne now? God's throne is going to have a descendant of David on it because God's throne is David's throne. And one of the most used Old Testament verses in the news says this, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. It's God saying to God in Jesus, sit with me on the throne until your enemies are a footstool. And Hebrews 1 says, Your throne, O God, referring to the Son, to Jesus, is forever and ever. The scepter of rightness is the scepter of your kingdom. This is very exciting. This is incredibly exciting. 
Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham, is the direct descendant of both of these guys and the direct and ultimate and complete fulfillment of the covenant God made with Abraham and with David. He's the king on the throne and he's the seed through whom all the nations will be blessed. That's exciting. Jesus is closing out all these, if you like, these loose ends are being wrapped up and fulfilled in him in his life, death and resurrection. Because God made a covenant and he didn't forget and he doesn't forget. So what's a covenant? A covenant in simple terms is a bond made in blood with life or death consequences. Important to know as we're in the new covenant, it's not a new suggestion or a new agreement or a new contract, it's a new covenant. It has more force, power, more binding effect than any of the words we currently use in, in popular language like contracts or agreements or even bonds. A covenant is a bond made in blood with life or death consequences. And again, you, you can research this. It was a common thing in ancient times, but obviously God adopted it as a practice of how he made his agreements, his connection, his arrangement with men. And uh, <laughs> it usually involves, in the old covenant, spilling of animal blood, lots of it. Abraham, when he made the covenant with Abraham, he cut an ox in half, and I think it was a, a goat or a sheep and some birds, and, and literally God stands in the middle of this big pool of blood and swears to Abraham that he's going to keep his promises. When God and Israel make covenant, when he's delivered the law, you know, Moses has come down the mountain and they make a covenant. I'm going to look at the verse in a minute. He literally throws blood from animals all over the people. You have to go home and have a shower that day. <clears throat> okay, quick, quick test. How many covenants make up our Bible? Anybody know? I'm just going to wait till. There's obviously the old covenant, new covenant, but the trouble is, old covenant is more than one covenant. It's not one thing. It's more than one. Anybody think how many, how many there might be in the old bit? Two? Any advance on two? Five? <laughs> Top of the class. The one that's easiest to miss is God's covenant with Adam because it's not referred to that right at the beginning. It's only later in Hosea is it referred to retrospectively as a covenant. So God has a covenant with Adam, Hosea 6, 7. And there is, in every covenant, there is the agreement element has got some conditionality to it, some laws and rules. What's remarkable about many of the covenants God, made, God makes is that most of the conditions he takes on himself to fulfill and he just gives a few to the people he makes the agreement with so Adam and Eve had a simple covenant which was don't eat that tree 
The next covenant in the Bible is with Noah. So we all, we all remember that, you know, the flood. It's horrible, horrible judgment falls. The people are wiped out. And then they emerge from the ark. And God makes a covenant with Noah. And God wipes people out because the continued reflection and preoccupation of men's hearts was, was evil. And he found one honorable man and he made a covenant with him. And in that covenant, God actually pledges to never do the thing he just did again. Oh, interesting. He's saying, I'm not going to step in again in a catastrophic way to stop evil's momentum. He's pledging, if you like, a stable planet, a stable environment in which other things can play out over the centuries and the millennia. And we know it's true because every time the rainbow's in the sky, we know why it's there. It's been adopted by many other causes and many other things, but fundamentally, it's a sign of a covenant that God made with the man Noah, that he would never flood the earth again. He would never deal with the sinfulness of men in such a catastrophic way. Every time you see a rainbow, it's a sign that God's a covenant-keeping God. And he's been keeping that thing in the sky for millennia because he never changes. See, he's a, he never changes because he's a covenant-keeping God. But what you experience of him changes. Noah experienced a flood. We've never had one. And never will. Has God changed? No, because he's a covenant-keeping God. Has what we experience of him changed? Yes, it has. And the next one I've put as the covenant with Israel, really, it was what was mediated through Moses to a nation now. So remember, part of God's promise to Abraham was to give him nations will come out of him. A nation will come out of you. And here we are, hundreds of years later, you have the nation of Israel, and God makes a blood covenant with Israel with loads of laws and rules and regulations, which those of you that did hope read spent hours reading through all the Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, all the things that you can't do and what to do if you find that in, in a house it's got mildew, whether you... Some, some of it, you know, you can, you can repair it, and otherwise, if, if it was a certain kind, your house got knocked down. That was the law. And, and on and on. There's, there's civil law, there's ceremonial law, there's moral law, all in this huge package called the law. And they all stood in Exodus 24, verse 8, and Moses took the blood, and he threw it on the people. Behold the blood of the covenant, he said, that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So they all had a shower in blood, so they had to go home and get... You're going to remember that day, aren't you? Imagine at the front here, we, you know, we kill a few sheep, get, get a goat, maybe a cow, we cut them in half, drain all the blood away, and say, we're making an agreement with God today, and we start throwing... I mean, Seth was flow, throwing a bit of water on people. I mean, people wouldn't come back to church if you threw blood on them, would they, really? That was church for the people of Israel. And he promised to incredibly bless them if they kept the covenant, but there was dire consequences if they didn't. If you read through around Deuteronomy 28, there's incredible blessing promise, but also dire consequences if not. So remember, it's a bond made in blood with life or death consequences. That's what Israel had. And that's the thing we refer to the most as the old covenant. And then our, our hero David 
toddles along and he messes the whole thing up. So we already looked at the covenant that God made with David, so we don't want to repeat that. But he, he, does, he does some bizarre things. In this process where God is establishing him as a king, where God is making this covenant with him to establish his government through David or David's offspring forever, David breaks tons of rules and he does not get smitten by the Almighty. He breaks scary rules. So David, in his covenant relationship with God, decides that he wants the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord in Jerusalem. So the tabernacle that Moses had erected was still on a mountain a few miles away. But David wants the presence of God, which is in and on and represented by the, the ark in Jerusalem. So he gets it on a cart, and that goes terribly wrong. And then he gets it on some poles, and some people walk into Jerusalem, and he creates what's referred to David's tabernacle. Now, in David's tabernacle... There is the ark and a lot of people doing singing, dancing and playing instruments, which is nothing like the tabernacle of Moses, which is a lot of slaughtering animals, a lot of curtains and a holy of holies where people only went in once and they used to go in with a rope around their leg in case they died in front of the presence of the Lord and no one wanted to go in to rescue them so they ropes that could pull them out. David takes that thing, the ark that was in the, that spot where you could die, and he puts it on public display in a tent and gets people singing and dancing, blowing trumpets, waving tambourines 24 hours a day in front of it. It's utterly illegal, utterly illegal by the plans that Moses had given. He was breaking all of the worship rules that are meticulously laid out in Exodus, Deuteronomy. I, I wonder if I was a, a Levite in the time and David said, oh, come on, come on, get your trumpet, get your lyre, get your whatever, get your tambourine. We're going in to the presence of the Lord and we're going to celebrate. And they all know the law. They'll be thinking, standing outside the tent, thinking, who's going to go first? I, I'm just going to tune my guitar a little bit longer because... <laughs> Maybe the tambourine guys will be more acceptable. Get them in, you know, if they're going to be smitten, on you go. <laughs> and, uh, anybody got any rope? You can imagine them just sort of maybe freaking out, but David's utterly confident that this is all right. And out of that confidence and out of that relationship with God flows all those psalms that we love to read and where he says things like, in the presence of the Lord there is fullness of joy. When they went in that tent, they found joy not getting their hind apart smitten. They weren't struck by a thunderbolt. They were impacted by the joy of God. David writes that, that, that there's a river flowing from the throne. He writes about the river of delights in the presence of God. Where did he get it? In the illegal tent. Doing the illegal worship. Getting wasted on God. With tambourines and lyres and shouts and claps and nobody dying. God made a covenant with this man. 
And in the context of the Mosaic covenant, the covenant with Israel, this is, this is illegal stuff. It's kind of under-the-counter worship. If you go to that tent, it's like a rave. I mean, it's fun. It's joy. It's a, if you go to the one on the, still on the hill, you know, they're killing animals and they're going through all the... But the place to hang out is David's tent in Jerusalem because that's rocking worship in there. Don't tell anybody because it shouldn't really be happening. But it is. That doesn't make sense, does it? God changes not. He's the same yesterday, today and forever. Yes, he is. He's a covenant-keeping God. He never doesn't keep his covenant. But how we get to experience him and how we get to understand him changes and develops through the story of the Bible. It's even true in our lives, isn't it? What you thought you knew about him at the beginning and what you think you know now is different, is it not? And, and maybe next week it'll develop again. The story of the Bible is one of, of a developing understanding as God shows himself to different people and makes covenants with them and inside those covenants he develops a story, he develops a picture of himself that he is because he is constantly trying to lure us into his reality by connecting to ours in a way we understand. I'm going to say that again. He's trying to connect us into his reality by connecting to ours in a way that we comprehend. Really, God didn't want to give, didn't want to give Israel a king, but Israel wanted a king because everybody around them had a king, so God gave them a king and he made a king his plan. Not because he thought the king was the best idea, but he communicated his will through a king who created a kingdom because people got that because that was the culture they were living in. Do you see? God communicates us through Jesus because he puts on a man and then we can understand him. He, he. The whole story of the Bible is God showing up in ways that we get. And so David, David's breaking all the rules and then you find out God told him to break the rules. But hang on a minute, hang on a minute. These were God's rules, and now he's breaking the rules, and he's telling David to break the rules. Ah. It tells us in 2 Chronicles 29, 25, that it was through Gad the seer and Nathan the prophet, I think Anthony mentioned this, last week as he did an excellent job going through sacred spaces if you've not heard that it was fantastic get it off the website but actually Gad the king seer and Nathan the prophet commanded David to change the rules the prophets the prophet spoke it's a new day here's a different idea God wants to communicate to us in this way it's going to be okay he's saying it and David's willing to go outside the box to establish a new reality. And later, right in the New Testament, it gets referred to that now, prophetically, David's tent is being reestablished. It's a place of worship. It's a place for all nations. This was a bit of New Testament happening in the Old because of a revelation that comes from heaven and a, and a man who's willing to break the rules 
to create a new culture and a new environment. So what is God doing? He's showing himself. And he's showing himself in increasing measure. And he's changing. He's changing what we think about him. He's actually violating what we thought if you were living, if you live long enough to live through all of these phases, things that you thought were completely unmovable suddenly are moved. Only one person goes in before the, before the ark once a year with a rope. That's the deal. That's how we do it. And before we do it, we kill lots of animals. We have lots of blood. And then we do it and we're safe and the guy comes out. That's, that's how we grew up doing this. That, and it's in the book. Then David comes along and goes, nah. Well, you can carry on doing that if you like, but God spoke to me about this way of doing it. Well, it can't be God. You know, God wouldn't change his mind. Well, I don't think God ever changed his mind. It's just what do we think God changing his mind means? So God's mind is constant is he wants to communicate to you and pull you into his reality in a way that you can receive it. The packages that it comes in change. Temples. God doesn't need a temple. We, we went to Karnak, which was built in ancient Egypt. The layout of the temple of Karnak is exactly the same as Solomon's temple and pretty much a blueprint for the tabernacle that Moses, there's a holy of holies, there's a box in the holy of holies, there's, there's a priesthood that get paid. Da, 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 da. So God's communicating with the people of Israel through a model that they understood in the culture they grew up in. I'm not saying it's not heavenly. I'm not saying it's not God. God makes it God. And then things move on because a radical like David comes along who's willing to dismantle all those barriers and go put God on display, which is much more a New Testament reality. How are we, how are we doing? <laughs> There's an unfolding of heaven. There's a development from our end. Okay, This is from our end. There's a development of ideas. There's a a changing of ideas, apparent conflict of ideas, but all of it is driven by this heart of God to connect to people and help them see who he really is, but not blow them away in the moment. And then, and then we get to the point of our sermon, which is Matthew 1.1, the new covenant. We just do a yay for the new covenant. Mine was a bit feeble. Yay for the new covenant. And you'd think all our problems are solved. A new covenant. Jesus, a man and God all in one place. This is it. And he gives us even more stuff that doesn't make sense. Thank you, Jesus. Glory. Huh? So this is where the David story is good to understand as Jesus starts to walk the planet because he's like David on steroids talk about breaking the rules so remember the beginning of the new covenant is the birth of Jesus Jesus introduces a new era he consummated it at the cross and he confirmed it and realized it in the resurrection and he made it actual in people's experience when he was ascended and poured out the spirit 
So here is a non-exhaustive list of all the things Jesus messed with. I like this bit. Are you ready? Matthew 5. Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, having a chat to lots and lots of people. He says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's actually in Leviticus, I think. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit, written down in the scripture, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. This is what you do. Someone takes your eye out, take their tooth out. You know, It's not a verse for dentists. It's actually about revenge. But I say to you, now we can skip over that, but, but I say to you is immediately a problem for his audience. He's taking authority over Moses. I mean, these were the disciples of Moses. And he said, you have heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. But I say, remember they said of Jesus, he was a man who spoke with authority. He penetrated with this. He says, I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If he slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other one also. If he asks you for your tunic, let him take your cloak as well. If, you know, go, forces you to go a mild, go too. You know the story. That's not in the law. It's not old covenant behavior. It's old covenant is you slap me, I'll slap you harder. <laughs> Turning the other cheek, it, there's no interface with the old idea. It's not like a, a nice subtle development. You know, well, we could just see how eye for eye would morph into turning the other cheek. It's, no, it's completely different. Isn't it? Unless I'm missing something. Turning the other cheek is completely different to taking people's eyes out. Can we have a vote? Is that, is, am I just on the right? I, I'm talking to the right people here. You are. Okay, so that's, that's number one. That, 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 that's going to mess with the audience quite a bit. Remember, they're steeped in this Old Testament stuff. How about this one, number two? He's talking about, do you remember they've been eating, Mark 7, they've been eating food, they've been taking grain with their hands and the religious authorities have got a huge issue because they didn't wash their hands. And <laughs> actually the big revelation is in the parenthesis, inspired by the Holy Spirit parenthesis. So Jesus He's talking about this and he says, don't worry about that because it goes in and it comes out again. (laughs) And then in parenthesis it says, thus he declared all foods clean. You take that to the bank. They weren't allowed to eat blood. I love stone away black pudding. Because Jesus said everything's clean. If you like it and you want to eat it, you're French and you like snails, go for it. If you were living under the old covenant, no snails allowed. And certainly not, you couldn't eat frogs, you couldn't eat all kinds of things were illegal. No pigs, no guys, no bacon. For hundreds of years, bacon was illegal. Jesus, in a parenthesis, makes bacon the blessed food of the righteous. Mark 7, 19. I like that one. Bacon's good. 
But he had authority, he took authority. What he's doing, what upset them so much, is he's taking authority and says, I'm making it clean. I'm changing the rules. I'm changing the revelation. I'm changing how you see him and who you think he is, and I'm changing how you think you're supposed to behave around him. You can come into his presence with a bacon sandwich, and he will not smite thee. That makes my heart happy. It's incredibly profound because there's a lot of rules about what not to eat. Life suddenly gets simpler. Number three. I have to hurry up if I'm going to get them all done, but I can leave them over for next time. Number three. In Luke 9, disciples James and John (coughs) saw some people doing some stuff they didn't like, and the Lord said, and they said, Lord, Do you want us to command fire from heaven? To come down and consume them, just like Elijah did. I mean, there's a lot of impressive things about this. Like They thought they could. They thought they had that much juice with God and Jesus that they could actually like, hey, do you want us to to take a few out for you, Jesus? (laughs) Because this is the trouble gang and we... You know, we're, we're loaded and ready to go. If you want fire, we know we're the sons of thunder. We can give you fire. So like, cocky so-and-sos, you know, like, we're going to burn them. We're going to take them down. And they're referring to Elijah because it's in the book. Is it about a hundred soldiers got fried by Elijah just at his command? Jesus says, you don't know what spirit you're of. He rebuked them. Uh, uh, it's really important to know what era you live in or you could be getting people toasted for the wrong reason there's an era shift with Jesus there's a complete there's a complete change of perspective and action and author, what's authorized and what's not authorized, and even what spirit is motivating. You know, Elijah's, it, Jesus has a chat on a mountain with Elijah as, he's, as Jesus is transfigured. Elijah is a highly honored prophet of the Old Testament. And Jesus is saying, don't do that Elijah stuff here. It's illegal. It's the wrong spirit now. Are we still happy? We're nearly done. That's number three. How about this one? Luke 4.18. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and set at liberty those who are oppressed. I'm probably going to have to finish with this. God in Christ came as our healer. We had a testimony of that today, and we're seeing him do more and more and reaching for more and more of that. But we read here Exodus 4, you see that God is giving some to be blind and some to have sight. And they believe this. So the story in John 9, when you get to John 9, Jesus is passing by a man blind from birth. And listen to the question. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, 
that he was born blind. And I'm not sure how you sin in the womb, but the point was that they believed that it was a curse from God because of the sin in the parents or possibly yours. And so in the culture of the day, people spat on blind beggars because they believed they were joining in the cursing that God, they thought that was a good thing because blindness was a curse from God. So a blind guy would hear someone hocking back and spitting on them. What does Jesus do? He spits. So the guy's going to hear. Remember, he's blind at this point in time. The blind guy. Jesus' answer is also important. We nearly missed that in my excitement. Jesus said, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. He just changed the rules again. He just said, I'm a God who's come to give sight to the blind, which is what I said in Luke 4. And then the blind guy hears, and he knows what's coming, he thinks. Because hundreds of people have already covered him in phlegm. Jesus spits. So he hears him spit. But we know, because we've got the text, we know he spat. And he made some mud with the spit. The next thing the blind man knows I mean, this is possibly even worse than spit. It's not, and Jesus discerned a hygienic patch of soil <laughs> upon which he spatteth his holy phlegm and he mixed a healing balm of phlegm and soil. I mean, who knows who had trodden there last or what animal or but Jesus spits it. I'll let your own imaginations go. Their mind's good enough for me. Jesus spits in it. See, so here's the spit. And the next thing he knows is <laughs> phlegm and a phlegm mud pie in each eye. I think Jesus healed him at multiple levels. The spit that had cursed him now healed him. The God who he thought had cursed him now gave him sight. I've got about three or four others, but I just don't have time. Jesus rewrote the rules. Jesus is God fully manifest. He is the one we look at. He's, he's our measure. He's our key to understanding. He is the full revelation of the Father. And I'm going to pick, I knew I'd need another session, so I'm going to pick this up, but hopefully I've encouraged you. He keeps his promises. He's a covenant-keeping God. Some of the stuff we don't understand, Jesus came to fix. You can't give the stuff you don't understand and Jesus the same measure of power in your thinking. We need to allow Jesus to have the supremacy that he actually deserves in the way we think about the Bible. God sent Jesus 
as the full and final revelation of his being. Complete in every way, not lacking in anything and not containing anything that shouldn't be there. There's nothing in Jesus to take out and there's nothing in Jesus that should be put in to give us a full understanding of who God is. If it's not in him, it's not in him. Let's, let's just stand Just take a moment just to lift up Jesus in your heart as the, he's the ultimate one, he's the, he's the glorious one, he's the king. He's the, he's the yes and an amen, to, in him all God's promises are yes and amen. So the, you know, whatever he said to you is yes in him. <sighs> things he said that you forgot he never forgets he's committed to every promise he ever made and he never forgets them look at Abraham hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years God's still keeping it still keeping it it's good to get more promises in your life than can actually come to pass in your lifetime pass them on to the next generation Father we just worship you in your amazingness, your beauty, your power, your glory. We honor you, Jesus, as the King, ah, the Lord, the all-powerful one, the beautiful one. Jesus, thank you for coming, thank you for living, thank you for dying, thank you for rising from the dead, thank you for being enthroned, and thank you for pouring out Holy Spirit all over us and in us. Thank you. Yes, thank you. So come Holy Spirit, fill us up. Do your work amongst us this morning. Give us the understanding, the revelation we need. Give us the healing we need. Give us the provision we need right now. Fulfill more of your promises to us as an individual and a community right now in Jesus' name. Just receive his goodness to you. Receive his goodness to you, whatever it is in the shape that you need it. <sighs> Thank you, Jesus. <sighs>